0: of this lived experiences as well as this conversation I have learned what I do not want to experience in spaces of faith or with other people of faith and that has really provided me the opportunity to define that for myself and cultivate that in the spaces around me again by asking like how do I foster connection here how do I foster community here, um, and really relying on the hard lessons learned to know what not to do and to point me toward what to do.
1: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Better Stories. Episode 3 of Season 3. We are moving right along this season. It's been so fun to interact with so many of you, hear about you, listening to the show. Uh, I greatly appreciate that. I'm thankful for you uh, and hope that you will continue to share it. Uh, I'm really excited about today. This is, this is kind of the first episode that I recorded quite a while ago. Um, It's an interview with a uh, good friend of mine, a former uh, West Virginia Wesleyan student that I got to interact with and meet in her time as an undergrad. And uh, we reconnected. Uh, We reconnected really kind of around um, the content of my book that I released, Wonky. Uh, And yes, I said wonky. It's a survival guide for following Jesus when you hate the church. And um, so you're gonna get to hear from Aaron Hudnall today. Aaron is uh, just this this really, really, really incredible um, and, and intelligent researcher who is doing really good work around the themes of youth development, um, of youth trauma, and in some ways specifically how it relates to religious organizations. I, I reconnected with Aaron after I Uh, read an article that she posted that she was one of the co-writers on, and I will share the article in in the the show notes, but the article, just just hear this title, is West Virginia a Religious Void, an Investigation? Um, And it was really fascinating to me because there's not too many people that I know that are doing research in this area specifically related to my state of West Virginia and this Appalachian culture. And so I was excited to interview Aaron. I can't wait for you to hear this interview, to share this interview with you. And I hope that you enjoy it as we jump in and welcome you to episode three of Better Stories, season three. Enjoy. So Aaron Hudnall is a doctoral candidate studying community sociology at West Virginia University. Um, She also works in youth development and community engagement full-time with the West Virginia Prevention Research Center. I can't wait to hear more about those roles but uh, a lot of where I met Erin came as she was an undergrad student in at West Virginia Wesleyan College and we interacted a little bit through um, some, some relationships and partnerships I had on campus uh, as well as just some connections through the church that I her. I and it was such a joy to know Erin, and now I'm kind of blown away by the work that she's doing. Um, uh, she shared with me that over the course of her life, her, her relationship with religion, with spirituality has fluctuated as she's evaluated kind of the role of organized religion in society and, and reflected on her personal experiences, both inside and outside of the church, so Aaron is um and I'm sure we'll hear about this but she's really concerned with faith spaces becoming trauma informed community centered gathering places serving people from every walk of life. So Aaron thank you so much for being a part of this tonight. I'm I'm really grateful that you would take the time to be here.
0: Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, so I I you and I have talked a lot leading up to this but I'm I'm anxious to hear and to have you share a little bit about um you know the themes that that I've been talking about in the book. Uh, you were one of the first people that kind of pre-read it, and I, I really appreciated that. And I loved your perspective as you were sharing back with me um, from somebody who I think it's fair to say you've had a, kind of a wrestling match with organized religion, and and so I love that we've reconnected with this theme in mind with these ideas of. How do we survive following Jesus? How do we innovate in in faith communities? What does reimagining that look like? Um, But I'd love, even as we start tonight, just for you to share a little bit about your own story, uh, your own religious upbringing, your faith, what that looked like, and, and what that looks like now.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate you inviting my story and my perspective. Before I dive into that, though, I do want to just uh, provide a little caveat, you know, I based on my social characteristics, you know, as a um, a cis woman, as a white woman, as a straight person, you know, with characteristics that are, you know, generally pretty well accepted in any space, especially face spaces. Uh, my story is probably um, mild compared to what other people experience who do not share those same social characteristics. And so I, I want to speak that out. Um, And just realized that my story is a result of sort of the characteristics that I bring to the table, and um, that that's not necessarily the truth for everyone. Um, But I did uh, grow up in organized religion, pretty much from you know my childhood until I went off to college. I grew up in a home church that was fluctuated between like a Southern Baptist theology and American Baptist theology, so that definitely colored a lot of you know the sermons that were delivered and, and the theology that we followed. My family is very religious on both sides, but my maternal grandfather is a preacher. So um, while I had my experiences at my home church, I also had experiences out at other churches where he was either like guest speaking or was the pastor there. Um, and so religion, organized religion was really a centerpiece of our family life and our family dynamics. Um, I was made to go to church for a while, and I do not recommend doing that um, because I think for myself and a lot of other people that I've talked to, um, that really was sort of the beginning of them turning away from organized religion was being made to participate. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do want to just mention uh, that that was very true for me, and I think it's still true for a lot of people. Um, although I had a lot of negative experiences at church, um, which I'm sure we'll I'll dive into later, I do want to say I had a lot of positive experiences as, as well. It wasn't one or the other it was very complex. You know, things that I really enjoyed were like the sense of community and social support that you can gain from a faith community, the ability to, you know serve the community and participate in service events. And then working with other young people was also a really positive experience um, while I was in church, but I also had a lot of bad experiences um, as a young person in church. You know, I can remember being bullied by other kids at church, by adults at church, being yelled at by adults if things were not going the way that they thought that they should go, um, and r- being really confused about some things. Right, like things that I saw like the politics and drama and infighting that can happen at some churches and how that created a lot of dissonance in me because it was, you know, we were taught one thing on Sundays and Wednesdays, but it was different than what you saw happening on Sundays and Wednesdays. And that as a young person trying to figure out faith for myself um, was hard to deal with. And it was very confusing. I also didn't like the exclusivity um, that I experienced in church, um, you know, just not being very welcoming to people that some people in the congregation thought should not be there or thought should not be a part of the church community. And that also really um, being counterintuitive to the things that we were being taught in church. Um, So I think a lot of my experience really aligns with this idea Uh, that's explored in Wonky a little bit about, you know, churches sometimes function more like a business or a social club than they do as a faith community. And I'd say that's very true for some aspects of my experience with the church. Um, So I did um, separate from organized religion slowly over time, and now I kind of operate on my own individual sense of spirituality rather than organized religion. But again, I mean, I, d- I still respect the role of organized religion for, you know, some people and realize that every institution has its challenges um, and that there are people like you out there who are trying to make a difference and, you know, work on the issue so that these spaces can become more welcoming for all people.
1: Yeah, I so I really appreciate the way you frame your story and, and even, you know, I appreciate the affirmation of seeing, seeing me attempting to do that. It's, I'm really mindful, kind of as you framed even your introduction to say, Hey, my perspective is limited. I'll share it. But there are others who are, who are very gun shy to share it. Um, You know, in writing the book, one of the things that I constantly wrestled with was there are others that I've hurt along the way who may have a story similar to yours who, who may read this book or say that guy wrote that book. He was the cause of my pain. He was the cause of my struggle with, with institutional religion. Um, So I'm really conscious of that. Even, even as we get into this conversation and I, you know, one of the things that I'm really curious about is I love the honesty, the authenticity of your story. And I'm curious how that's shaped, how that's formed and led you to where you are now. Um, You know, personally, I think you've spoken a little bit about that. Feel, feel free to tell more about that, but even, especially in terms of your, your research, I know you are studying, uh, doctoral work with, with sociology, community sociology at WVU. I know you're working in this youth development field, this community engagement idea. Um, how, how have these things shaped, you know, the, the work, the passions, the, the personality that you bring to the table of all that you're a part of?
0: Yeah, so I feel like I could um, take this question in a million different directions, but I think what I'll start out saying is um, my sense of spirituality does inform the work that I do and it shows up in the work that I do, right? So, you know, in this journey from participating in organized religion to having a more personal sense of spirituality, I had a lot of realizations that helped me be more open to people who believe different things in me and have a different life than I have. Um, you know, I mean, it's realizations like m- most of, well, I would say all of the world's major religions have a lot of themes in common. So we're not that separated, even if we have different beliefs. Um really seeing spirituality as a way to be open to connection and open to like mystery, right? Like my spirituality or my view of faith is one way of viewing faith's role in the world or, or one way of practicing faith. And there are a million different iterations for every person that exists because everyone's beliefs are informed by their personal experiences. And that's a unique set for every person. So really keeping that in mind. Um, It also gives me the ability to, you know, connect with people from very different views than myself and create a sense of solidarity, right? Like the oftentimes the way that spirituality is defined is that it's connection to something larger than yourself and realizing that everything is connected. So me taking time to help out a complete stranger is a way that I practice and embody my spirituality and not assessing whether that stranger is worthy of my help. Right. So, um, so that is kind of the perspective that I bring to the work is really this, that spirituality provides me a sense of openness that is really important to the work that I do. You know, we have to be open to foster connection. We have to be open to help people, um, affirm and realize the depth and breadth of who they are. And so that's really how it plugs into my youth development and community engagement work. Um, So some of my research recently has been about how to foster youth engagement in West Virginia. And a lot of what I learned from the young people we interviewed and did focus groups with, and then also people who work with young people, um, was really affirming for a lot of my experiences in church and outside of church as being a person that was engaged and also really affirmed a lot of the ways that I view my spirituality, right? Like it's, um, You know, allowing people to realize their own agency, empathic listening, um, asking people to do something and then trusting them to do it. So I think that my spirituality shows up and the lessons that I've learned over time show up in this work. And I'm still continuing to like realize that and explore that. And I can talk more about um, the youth development and engagement work if you'd like. Um, And I also want to say that anyone that's interested in that work and that research is welcome to contact me because of course, when we did that research, we wanted it to go as far and wide as it could to be beneficial to communities and creating these spaces that are open and trauma informed.
1: Yeah, I I would love for you to share a little bit more about that. That's at least in part how we reconnected. I had seen an article or I think it was a journal article or study that you had been a part of. Um, So I'd love for folks to hear a little bit more about that research. And and then kind of the boots on the ground practitioner stuff that you're doing right there, uh, how that's how that's relating to it. So, yeah, tell us tell us more about that.
0: Yeah, so uh, the research that I did was uh, we called the Youth Engagement Best Practices Guide, and it has 10 best practices, as well as several case studies that um, kind of illustrate how you can put the practices to use based on how people have already used them. Um, And so what I think I want to say about that is while it is meant to help people better understand how to foster youth engagement, the practices actually are applicable very broadly, right? Like we say, If you do these practices, it makes your space more welcoming and and attuned to the needs of young people. But that it's actually true for all people, right? Because it's things that I mentioned a few moments ago, like active listening, trusting people to do the things that you ask them to do, allowing them to explore their agency um, and sharing power. Sharing power is one of the most major themes in the guide. And we can do that in a lot of different ways. And through some of those ways that I just mentioned, like letting people explore their agency and follow through on the things that they say they're gonna do without micromanaging them. So um, the case studies also are really amazing because they're based on, you know, real world uh, groups that are engaging young people and doing it in really innovative ways um, by essentially sharing power. And so I like to think about how that theme of sharing power applies, you know, outside of the youth engagement space. It applies to spaces of faith. It applies to spaces of employment. It applies everywhere. And sharing power, I think, is a, it's an innovative idea in and of itself because a lot of our institutions are organized around a hierarchical structure where one person or a group of people have all the power to make decisions and really guide the vision and mission of of whatever space that they're in. Um, And so I often think about how this does apply to churches as a space for positive youth development, because I don't think that in a lot of churches or spaces where we are worshiping or practicing our faith, that young people are viewed as leadership, are viewed as people who can have, uh, who have knowledgeable insight about what the church should be doing and where the church should go. Um, And also making sure that like leadership is representative of, of membership including the young people that are in your church. And young people is a is a broad term, right? In the youth engagement guide, we define young people as anyone under retirement age. And that may seem very odd, but you have to consider our context in a state of West Virginia with an aging population. You know, research sure. shows that Like, uh, I believe it's 25% of our population will be over retirement age in less than a decade. So young people, it does have broad applicability. So it's also about, you know, thinking about how do we... um, how do we come to a shared understanding of, you know, the language that we use in churches and how is that also a form of sharing power and adopting new language, changing with the times, using more affirming language, all those things are, um, you know, other things that we consider in a youth engagement practice.
1: Yeah, that's, so that's so interesting to me. And I, you know, I'm sitting here thinking of anecdotally, my, my parents are part of the baby boomer generation. And so it's this You know, they're well into their retirement. Um, This massive population boom that happened is now consisting of so much of our our demographic population, not just in West Virginia, but but nationwide even. Um, And and it's funny, Aaron, as you're sharing the things that have come out of your research, your own journey, what spirituality looks like for you now, I, I keep finding myself thinking about your echoing back to the Eastern practices of, of, you know, the, the monastic movements that said it, spirituality is incredibly personal. It's experiential. Um, it, it is communal at the same time. There's this balance of personal experience and communal life and embodied presence. And in many ways, I think you're echoing where the origins of Christianity emerged from. Um, and yet somewhere along the line, we, we became corporate, we became, you know, by communal, we meant well-organized and very hierarchical. Uh, and, and much of, much of what I'm talking about in the book really resonates with this to say, hey, we've done this for, you know, over a thousand years now, it's not working. And if I heard someone speaking the other day about CPR, that the, the church is in a state of CPR, where, where, COVID, where um, kind of post-Trump, post this political chaos that has reigned, and then in the racialized society that we're a part of, we've got these three things that have not, from my perspective, they've not caused the damage, but they've accelerated what was already broken. And, and the church is reeling from it. And oftentimes, the youth, the younger people, as you define them, anyone below retirement age, are the ones who are checking out. You know, it, it is the people who are saying, I'm actually done with this and and I'm looking for something different. So I, that's that's kind of my long rant to to ask, what are you finding um, from the research, from your practices and and how can faith communities provide healthy programming for for youth development? what What should we be considering for those who are saying, yeah, I'm tired of the church, but, but I want to innovate. I want to reimagine. What should we be considering when we think about this, this idea of youth programming, youth um, relationships that you're talking about?
0: Yeah, Thanks for that question. So I want to reiterate everything I said a, mo- a few months ago about sharing power. That really is at the core of a, of a good youth engagement practice. The other thing that I view at the core of that is really aligned with what you were just saying about spirituality being Um, really centered in personal experience, because one thing that we say whenever we talk to people about the youth engagement guide, and I keep saying we, because I got to give some credit where credit is due. Another Wesleyan student, Erin Chateau, um, was actually the lead author on that youth engagement guide. Um, So she has expertise in this area as well, and was fabulous to collaborate with. Um, But what we emphasize in that is how crucial it is for personal reflection to be a part of positive youth engagement, because, mm-hmm. and, and this aligns with that, what you were saying about spirituality. Um, so I recently read a, a book that's a little bit dated now, but still fabulous and, and very relevant called when the heart weighs by Sue Monk kid. Have you, are you familiar with it?
1: I've heard of it. I've not read it.
0: Yeah. So Sue Monk kid really talks about in that book, how, Um, Religion or spirituality is a practice of self reflection and really doing internal work to make sure that the person we are is good for other people to be around. And Mm so, um, to me, that's at the core of youth engagement practices. Like, how can I do my internal work to make sure that I, if I can't eliminate my biases, at least I can have them in check? If I, you know, to learn how to embrace difference, be tolerant and accepting of things that just don't make sense to you, right? You know, a lot of what we found through the youth engagement research was uh, how challenging intergenerational differences are. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, you know, we, you know, millennials, Gen Z, Gen X, all that's that means something, right? That means the historical time period when you, you grew up. And that, Influences your worldview. So, naturally, um, if you grew up in a different time period than someone else, your worldviews are going to be different and you're going to have to work really hard to bridge that gap and create some shared understanding. So, I think that is part of it, right? The internal work of how do I be accepting of things that I don't understand, that don't make any sense to me, that are really counterintuitive to the way that I live my life? Because young people you know, are going to be that driver of innovation because they're plugged into what's happening in the moment. They are in their time period of growing up. Um, so I think that the sharing power, the importance of internal work, and again, just bridging difference are three really important things that came out of that research.
1: Yeah, and that's again, I love the language that you use. And we'll share, I'll share if you can send me any of the links to the research or to the work, the guide that you've put out. Um, your co-author, I'd love to connect people to your resources and the things that you guys are are doing right now as well. Um the kind of the follow-up to that. So, and I heard a little bit of this in your story. I I would ask, and and, it, and this is a little off script. So if 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 it doesn't make sense, feel free to tell me, but um, I would love to hear how the, the upbringing that you experienced, you know, did you experience those things that you just described or were those things non-existent? What does that make sense? So the characteristics where you're talking about sharing power and giving space for reflection and, you know, all of those positive markers, maybe how did you either not experience that? Where did the church kind of mess that up? And, and again, none of our podcast here is to just throw stones Um, I don't have any desire to do that, but I do have a really deep desire to tell honest stories and, and say, you know, here's, here's what hurt me. Here's the trauma that was caused, or here's the pain, or here's, here's where this kind of fell apart for me. And, and, and what I think the church needs to hear today and the leaders of the church is here are the fallout effects of that. Here's, here's what's come up short. So even in those kind of pieces that you've reflected on, I'd love to hear what that looked like or didn't look like for you in, in your own journey.
0: Yeah, uh, so your question definitely makes sense. So the three things that, three important things that I mentioned were the sharing power, the bridging difference, and the importance of internal work. Mm -hmm. Um, So beginning with sharing power, and I I do want to, again, provide a caveat that um, my memory about a lot of my experiences um, is not great. Oftentimes what I'm left with, and, and This is common in human experience. It's actually an emotion rather than a concrete memory. Um, So a lot of what I say may seem ambiguous. And some things I remember very clearly and some things I don't. So I'll try to note where that's true. So one thing I do remember very clearly, um, at least as to the information available to me while I was engaging in youth programming at my church, was that that wasn't a great space of sharing power. And not to say that that was like intentional power hoarding or anything like that, but it was just, you know, the the reality that the same type of, this not the same type, the same youth programming was provided every single year. You know, it was things like, we're going to have a vacation Bible school, we're going to do a youth Christmas play, and then a teen Christmas play, and then we're going to do Sunday school, and then we have a couple other programs and it never changed, right? So there was never a time where I remember a, you, a person who led youth groups in my church sitting down and being like, what would you like to do? Where would you like to go? What would you like to see? What are needed changes? That conversation never happened. And so I, I really kind of mourn the lost opportunity for myself and my peers to have had a leadership role in determining our own programming. I think that's super important. Um, I think for bridging difference and the internal work theme, you know, it wasn't black and white. You know, there were some people in the church that were really good at this and some people that were not. Um, but back to the generational difference thing, because it also ties into shared power. You know, from my understanding of my church and in a lot of churches in my area, it is that hierarchical structure where there is a select group of people who get decision-making power. And I mean, you can have something like a a vote or a business meeting where those things are discussed, but that is very different than the conversations that go on behind closed doors and the decisions that are never presented to the congregation. Um, So, you know, I think it can be very problematic when you do have a select group of people that are in charge of the decision-making, especially if they are not getting feedback from everyone in the church about those decisions or what the options for the decision are. Um, So that's just a few ways that it has showed up um, in my personal experience with church. And um, I, I did say I would try to know when I don't have as much clarity about stuff. I will say that that is true for the last thing that I talked about, right? Like the politics of church um, were definitely something now and in the past that I have not been interested in. So I may not be completely clear about how that worked, but at least from my experience, um, I was often worried about, you know, what are the conversations that we're we're not seeing and how is that influencing um, what we're doing at church and how we're operating?
1: Yeah, and I, and I love, uh, again, and you and I have talked about this, I love your reflection and especially the insight to say, I don't have all the details. I have the emotions I have, which is, which is really helpful trauma language, right? That we look back at these places um, in in our discipleship process within our uh, faith community right now. One of the things that I think is a harder part for folks is we ask them to look at their, do the historical spiritual work of their life. Mm -hmm. Um, So much of our American Christianity is based on forward momentum. So you know, we preach a, a gospel of grace. Jesus loves you as you are, come as you are. Okay. Now that you're in the club, here's all the stuff you got to do. <laughs> you got to read the Bible more. You got to serve more. You got to volunteer more. You got to pray more, like all this kind of Americanized status-driven performance mentality versus, yeah, grace is real and it's it's grace to be authentically you. And actually part of that means doing that, that really difficult work of looking backwards. Uh, And so it's fascinating to me that you're looking back as a kid going, yeah, even that feels weird. Like I don't have all the details. I don't know what was going on behind closed doors, but as you're processing the emotion of it, you're recognizing. And I think this is, this is the truth that you've experienced is that was not well done. That was not right. That was not the way you know, and there's, I don't know if you're familiar with Kara Powell. um, And I think she's from Fuller Seminary, Fuller, Fuller Seminary. They have like a Fuller Youth Institute, but she's all of the research that they've done in terms of sticky faith is, is kind of the language they use really echoes exactly what you're talking about. Kind of personal, you know, personal experience, sharing in, you know, key roles, key responsibilities, giving, freedom to try things out to to be leadership voices and leadership bodies. Um, you know, it's just, and so yeah, I, I I really resonate with that. And I hope that even along this way, you guys can be a resource for for folks that are listening, kind of picturing this and thinking about what this looks like. Because I love I love the language that you're using. Um, Aaron, how, how can and and this is kind of the next question, how can the language that we use create healthier churches what does it look like from your perspective as someone who's wrestled with this it sounds like for a long time um what does it look like to reimagine to innovate faith communities and how does how does our language relate to that
0: yeah yeah so just to uh speak to what you just said I'm happy to share Uh, resources and act as a resource for anyone that's interested in talking about youth engagement I'd love to connect with people about that so anytime I'm happy to do that and I also love that that you put these two questions together so you're asking like what's the role of language and how do we innovate because I think those two things are are very intimately connected because so let's start with the importance of language I think one like one thing I think that is kind of underneath the layers of this question is like if we're going to innovate that essentially means like how are we going to create a greater sense of community so that we can accomplish new and, and greater things together and so having a sense of community is really important with language right because we have to have shared definitions and shared understanding so you can start with community Right. Like if a church views themselves as a community, we need to ask, well, what does that mean? How did you define community? Does that mean we welcome everybody or only certain people? Does that mean we have shared rituals or we don't? Like when you use the word community, what do you actually mean? And is everyone that is a part of this community on the same page about that? And if we're not, how can we get either get on the same page or create a new shared understanding that will help us improve and innovate? So I think having those conversations are really important. Um, And again, it's a way of sharing power because you get to further understand like what is the language that resonates with people? How are they thinking about this language? And then how does that shared language create a sense of community and identity that makes people want to work in solidarity um, for innovation or towards a certain goal that you all set together. So I think they, they go hand in hand. I think uh, two things that are important to in- innovation are vulnerability and empathy. And I'm totally channeling Brene Brown right here because she talks about innovation in organizations all the time. So obviously that applies to faith communities as well. And so, um, you know, I think when some people hear the word vulnerability, you uh, it is uh, associated with like weakness, Um, but the way that it's becoming used, especially in like organizational innovation or in being uh, in supporting trauma-informed spaces is vulnerability is really authenticity, right? It's asking for what you want and need um, in the moment every time. It's like not putting your mask up. It's not pretending to be something that you're not, right? And so why do we need that for innovation? It's because we need to understand what the actual needs and desires are so that we can serve those needs and desires, so that people are in a good place to contribute to innovation. And that requires a lot of empathy, right? So like if someone's showing up as their authentic self, the last thing we want to do is um, harm someone with judgment either explicit or implicit, because that's only going to disincentivize them to put that mask right back up and be inauthentic, which is, you know, not going to get us anywhere. So I think, um, you know, vulnerability and empathy, they are at the core of a lot of spiritual practices. They are at the core of a lot of lessons and teachings in the Bible and other religious texts. So it's not only, you know, Contributing to innovation in a church is also contributing to the health of the church at the same time. And so I think when you can support those things, innovation naturally happens, especially if you're doing things like, you know, throwing power back to the membership so that the leadership can follow through on the things that the membership wants. And, you know, all of those things that we talked about in sharing power um, and bridging difference in the internal work are all important for that. And, you uh, Again, I just want to say that if you're doing those things, you don't really have to think about innovation. It will probably naturally happen.
1: Wow, that so there's so much wisdom in in what you just shared. I and I so appreciate it. My mind is going a hundred miles an hour. Um, two things that I'm going to try to remember both of them. one, there's a there's a phenomenal book called "The Sound of Life's Unspeakable Beauty," and it's written by a guy named Martin Schleski. Uh, who is a, I believe he's a German luthier, like a master violin maker who did kind of this entire work on reflecting spiritually on the process of his craft. And one of the things that really bleeds out of that book, and I read this on sabbatical, I read this in uh, the mountains in Colorado. So it was kind of this magical moment of reading this where he talks and speaks directly to the reader and specifically artists, but really calls out like, you are gifted, not for perfection. You're gifted for that vulnerability that you just talked about. Like the the crowd, the audience, the people that you serve, the people that you pour yourself out for need your imperfections. They don't need the perfect version of you. Um, And and part of the spiritual act of trusting God, and he's writing from a very Christ-centered perspective, but it's part of the act of that is the surrender to your own brokenness and vulnerability And I'm just, I'm so reminded of that because it was so formative for me coming back from sabbatical. Much of what I heard in that time was lead out of your weakness, lead out of your uncertainty. And I can't tell you how many pastors I talked to who would encourage that from congregants, but we don't buy that ourselves. We don't actually buy into that way of thinking. Um, And so the second piece of this that I I, want to, I don't know that there's a question other than I'd love to hear your thoughts Um, is we're wrestling with this within our community. Now, as COVID hit, like so many other churches, we quickly found a way to do this online. And so we did, you know, the Facebook live stream, we were putting video content out and as people are slowly getting back into gathered spaces, we're still doing this Facebook live stream. And I just kind of full confession I really struggle with it. I really despise and, and somewhat feel like it, I've told my wife, I feel like I'm hosting something that culturally language wise, we would, we would echo more of a Thanksgiving family dinner when we gather that it's meant to be that intimate, it's meant to be that special, that unique each week as we gather as a, as a culture, as a tribe, as a community of people. And yet for convenience, for efficiency, um, for comfort of folks, we're kind of going, yeah, and you're all welcome. We'll just put it out there online for whoever on Facebook to check it out. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the struggle is, is that a good practice? Is that something that we go, okay, well, you may get less viewers. You may get less givers. You may get less commitment, connection, whatever, but at least we're keeping that cultural space for our church sacred um in that fullest sense of the word. so it's just made for some really really super interesting conversations and and struggles as we walk through that and I'm thinking how it resonates with what you're talking about our language and our practices of what what community really means so yeah I I just I don't know I, I I'm my head's spinning, like I said, so. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, I, I totally get that, because, yeah, like you said before we recorded, we're both ideas people, and it can be mm-hmm. challenging to wrap all that up and get it out, so I understand, Um, but I think, I think what I want to say here is, and again, this is my perspective as someone who's like, I'm not 30 yet, I spend a lot of time online, you know, I'm very much in that, you um, generation that is very used to, comfortable with, and probably prefers some virtual engagement over some in-person engagement, though I also do appreciate that, and like I want to contextualize that also by saying like Zoom fatigue in the era of, you know, living through the coronavirus is very real, Um, but I think that, you know, like you said, it's led to other opportunities for Uh, people and organizations to think about how to have an online presence and really evaluate if that is benefiting them or not. Mm -hmm. So from my personal experience, I have got on Facebook Live to view um, church services a lot, like for churches I've never even been to, because even though I really ascribe more to like spirituality rather than organized religion, if I feel like I need that, Like, if I feel like that's going to be a boost for me to participate in a service, you know, it can be way less intimidating to log on and be part of a service virtually than to step through the doors and face a bunch of people that you've never met before, especially for people like me who have have witnessed newcomers to a church not be treated well yeah i think it's a really great way for people to kind of get a beat on the culture of a church before they expose themselves to that church um and then you know it's it's to me i view it as a service right like um in my church we were always thinking about like how can we serve people who are homebound how can we serve people who can't make it to church so to me that that is one way right um, you know, you can go to Facebook analytics and see who is watching your service, but you never know what those pers- that person's circumstances are and if they may may not be able to physically or socially be in your church, but they still get access to it that way. So from my experience, I think it's very valuable, but I do recognize that, um, you know, faith faces have to critically think about, you know, like, is this going to become an impediment to being able to engage people in person? And Mm -hmm. and what is the value and role and continuing to assess that because it can change over time.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. And even as you said that, I'm thinking people who are hesitant to experience a church because I've never met those people, or I feel like I have met those people, they're just different faces. And again, that trauma language of what did it feel like getting hurt by that church and why would I ever go back? And now I can at least find my way in, um, by this, by this online presence. That's, that's really helpful. So Aaron, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I, but I am the, you know, the thrust of the book is ultimately a survival guide for following Jesus when you, when you hate the church and, and my heartbeat, my passion has always been in the midst of every struggle. How are we helping people connect with and and pointing them towards, You know this this relationship with Christ, and and you and I talked about this. I, I'm curious just to hear from your own story, what where has this led you to in terms of of Jesus, of of just the work that you're doing, the passion that you have. I, I believe you have a, and I told you this before. I think you have an incredibly prophetic voice that is needed, not just. by by your colleagues and by the world that you're a part of right now I'm so appreciative of all the the work that you're doing and excited to see you grow um but also I think I think the church needs your voice prophetically and and so sometimes prophets function better outside the system um so so don't hear any judgment in that at all cuz I love where you are and I want you to just thrive wherever you are but but just anything that you would share kind of in regards to that um, or, or anything else you think people need to hear as we kind of kind of wind down.
0: Yeah, I appreciate the question so much. And I also appreciate all of your kind words. Um, I, I do want to share that it like connecting with you has been a very healing experience, especially when you know you said that about the prophetic prophetic voice thing and 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 not to say that i'm letting it be an ego thing yeah. right but just the cuz i think when we've connected before we talked a lot about the role of emotion in church and like anger being a very um contested emotion in church and how that's connected to a prophetic voice and so that was super helpful for me and very healing for me so i really appreciate that you were able to provide that perspective to my life it was much needed um so I do want to say that even though I, you know, a, a personal sense of spirituality resonates more with me than like a, a specific theology or um, denomination or, you know, whatever you want to call it, I still use a lot of like the theology and concepts that I grew up with. Right. And I constantly ask myself, like, how can I be more Christ-like? How can I embody um you know the practices of Jesus wherever I am. And I want to clarify by saying I mean the the table flipping Jesus as well as the Jesus that hung out with the people on the margins of this of society and legitimately wanted to and didn't care how he was perceived by people in power. Both of those. Um, So I when I step into spaces I'm I'm thinking about that. Right. And I'm also thinking about like how radical Jesus was and I want to talk about that word for a second because I think when people use the word radical now it has a very negative connotation it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people that are really far off from like the definition of the word or how the word used to be used I like to say I think that when people uh, use the word radical now they're usually describing another person with beliefs that don't resonate with their beliefs and when I have been called radical I've perceived it as I'm radical because I want society to be humane. Mm -hmm. So that is where I'm coming from with that word. But Jesus was radical, extremely. He bucked a a lot of the mainstream understandings and beliefs of the day, and he did it proudly and loudly. And so that's sort of like the Jesus that I'm trying to channel is the the Jesus that goes to bat for other people, but is also really um, present and compassionate to the people that are right in front of him while he's being forward looking and thinking about how to serve other people down the road or to, to change things so that people um, are better off in the long run. So I'm often asking myself when I show up in a space, like, you know, how do I, how do I foster connection here? How do I foster a sense of community? How do I work towards justice here? Um, And things like that. So really trying to keep in mind, like, um, and, and kind of unlearn the ways that Jesus was presented to be palatable to certain groups of people and really be centered in the way that Jesus actually showed up in the Bible and in, in those stories and the way that he served others. Um, and I think the, the, the final thing that I want to say about this is through all of this lived experiences, as well as this conversation, I have learned what I do not want to experience in spaces of faith or with other people of faith. And that has really provided me the opportunity to define that for myself and cultivate that in the spaces around me. Again, by asking like, how do I foster connection here? How do I foster community here? Um, And really relying on the hard lessons learned to know what not to do and to point me toward what to do.
1: Yeah, and that's so cool to hear. It's so much... Of, of what you just said is so needed to actually define and be okay with defining. Here's here's what I am for. Here's, here's what I believe in. Here's what I believe this to be about. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so much we could say. I, I'm thinking of the story where Jesus heals the, the demon-possessed man, Legion, and, you know, immediately after this incredible healing of this guy that has tormented the community for years, the community says, Jesus, get out of here. You just killed all our pigs and our pigs were the financial economic thriving that we did. So in the face of the opportunity for healing, the community is more concerned with financial security. Um, and it's such a rich story and it's, it's a, it's a prophetic moment for Jesus. It's a table flipping moment to say your priorities are all wrong. So no, Aaron, I, I think, I think, you you should be preaching. I think you just preached an incredible sermon. So well done. <laughs> um, not that you need that for me. I just I just want to say I'm very encouraged and excited for the for the work that you're doing and uh, grateful that you would take the time and and thank you for being a part of this. Like I said, we'll share all the resources, any books that we've mentioned. Uh, I'll put links up for that. I'll put links up for your work and for your resource guide and, and anything you want to share, we'll, we'll put that out. But Aaron, thank you so much for being a part of this tonight.
0: Thank you. I appreciate your time as well. And it's been um, a joy and so beneficial for me to participate in these conversations with you. So I am so appreciative of uh, you sharing what you know and what you've experienced with me as well.